Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today on Strange New Worlds, you're going to meet a very important person in my scientific life, Dr. Anirudh Prabhu, my office mate at the Carnegie Institution for Science's Earth and Planets Laboratory. Anirudh is a geoinformatics scientist who specializes in using data to solve critical problems in Earth and planetary science. He and I sit next to each other every day, trading ideas and working on our projects over endless cups of tea and the occasional Oreo cookie. Anirudh is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And I've learned so much from him about data science in the short time we've known each other. And now, so will you. Today's episode is the first half of my two-part conversation with Anirudh. We'll get to know him a little bit, learn about the field of informatics, and then talk about two recently accepted papers of his that describe and demonstrate how informatics can help reshape and revolutionize planetary exploration. Ready? Engage. Dr. Anirudh Prabhu, <laughs> welcome to Strange New Worlds. Yeah. This is so funny because we're just in our office mm -hmm. and we're just sitting across from each other like we're chatting normally, but there's a microphone between us, which I guess is the only new thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I know you've been asking for a while and, you know, we finally made it happen. Yeah, we've known each other for a little more than a year and a half now, yeah. maybe almost two years. Yeah. Um, and in that amount of time, which is really a short amount of time. Yeah. We've done so much. Yeah. I mean, we're here every day. So, you know, those two years add up quite a bit. But, you know, I feel like I've known you for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's about time that we do a podcast together to share a little bit, just a little bit of the science <laughs> that we've been doing. Yes, yes. <laughs> And I'm sure some of the other papers will follow soon. Yes. Maybe we should do a reverse interview of me interviewing you on your podcast about papers that you led, because there's some super cool stuff there too. Wow. Already spinning things around on me, Honor. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I love about the interactions. They're so unpredictable. <laughs> so as you know, this is a science and Star Trek podcast, mm -hmm. and... I know you haven't watched too many Star Trek episodes yet, yes. but by virtue of being my office mate, you have been indoctrinated a little bit. Um, <laughs> we watched the premiere of the newest streaming show, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, the newest live action one, together right here in this office mm -hmm. on our big TV. After work hours, I should add, just in case anybody from Carnegie Admin <laughs> is listening, we weren't slacking off. This was completely yes. after work hours. And then for this podcast in particular, you watched the very famous, very classic Star Trek The Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man. Yep. Anurud, do you have any general impressions from these two Star Trek episodes that you've seen so far? I just got to say I love the show from what little I watched. I'd love to be able to get into it like make the commitment and really get into it and which is why i asked you like after we watched the first episode of strange new worlds you know is this what you would recommend that i start from if i'm like starting from scratch because growing up in india star trek wasn't a thing too much it was more of a star wars craze in the sci-fi sense 
and I'm a Lord of the Rings fan and I've been like super into fantasy. So my my fiction tastes have gone sort of diverged that way. But I got to say, the Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man, really pushed me to like, okay, now I got to watch it because I like that so much better than even the first episode of Strange New Worlds, which I get, right? Like uh, you have a new show introduction, so they're trying to introduce characters, they're trying to set up the world and it's exciting, but it's foundational where Mm -hmm. here I all, I mean, pop culture and Star Trek is so well known that I know these characters to a certain extent, but like I haven't sort of experienced the world and, you know, seen the show itself. But I kind of knew what Data was about. I kind of knew what Picard was about. It was sort of there. But this was like, oh yeah, I love it. Uh, I wasn't prepared for the emotional pang during the trial, but like after the trial. I wasn't prepared to hate that Maddox guy as much as I hated him. (laughs) But like, it triggered me every time he kept saying it. Yeah. Right? And... I know, that's the point of the episode, that's the point of the show. I'm like, oh, God, stop it. <laughs> uh, so, I loved it, yeah. I mean, I could talk about it, but yeah, I, I'd love to watch more. And I know you said, you know, it'd be nice to watch from Strange New Worlds, but after that episode, I'm kind of inclined to start from The Next Generation. Wow, very good, yeah. So, that's, that's my general impression. Yeah, yeah. Next Gen is just a glorious series. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you which episodes you can skip. <laughs> because there are some, Good. You know, back in those days, they did 26 episodes a season because they mm-hmm. had to for network mm-hmm. television. You know, so there are some clunkers in there, mm-hmm. but there are also some pure gems. And this was one of them. This is awesome. one that we just keep talking about because mm-hmm. it's deeply rooted in science, mm-hmm. you know, uh, AI, yeah. Yeah. you know, ethics, uh, yeah. ethics, ethics yeah. and then also, you know, the philosophical side. It's just a lot to think about. And then I love that you're moved emotionally by it, too, because mm-hmm. I think that's what good storytelling oh, is yes. all about. Yeah. Hating Maddox. <laughs> yeah. Feeling, you know, also feeling for Riker because he had mm-hmm. to take yes. a stance against Data, his friend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I'm excited for you to Go yeah. on your Star Trek Next Generation journey, yeah. and then we can talk about it more. Yeah, um, But for now, let's dive into the science, and then mm-hmm. we'll cycle back to The sure. Measure of a Man. So in terms of the science, one of the recurring themes of this podcast is multidisciplinarity. And I feel like that's because I'm a multidisciplinary scientist as an astrobiologist mm-hmm. and a planetary scientist, which brings together fields of geology, astronomy, biology, chemistry, atmospheric science, all into one. But I feel like that pales in comparison to the way that multidisciplinary is really you. You mm-hmm. actually literally have a PhD yes. in multidisciplinary <laughs> studies. Yeah. Um, Anurud, what does it mean to you to be a multidisciplinary scientist? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, yes, as you said, I have a PhD in multidisciplinary science, multidisciplinary studies, and Essentially, this is a brainchild of some of the folks at RPI because they like brought together this department. It just falls plain under the School of Science. It doesn't fall under anything else. There's no like particular department that you're you know affiliated with. And the basis of that was surely up till your undergrad or your master's, you have gained a background in whatever field of your choosing is, and you will continue doing you know research in that field as well. But the structure is to force you to think a bit about 
an in- introspect about what are the fields that are influenced directly by the work that you do in your own field and to go out and apply yourself, apply the things you do in those various fields. And for me, like the way my program was structured, it was very customized. And the way like it worked for my advisor, I have a background. I started with computer engineering, went to master's, sort of specializing in data science and analytics, and then did this PhD, which was like fundamentally based on AI, and then really applied it in whatever field I wanted, which started off with, you know, geoinformatics, with like mineralogy, with paleontology, with petrology, with a bit of uh, microbiology and paleobiology. So that was my starting point. And people need a bit of a nudge sometimes to be interdisciplinary. And so when you structure their education of like having this one baseline and then like just try collaborating in a few places, you start thinking about things in a big picture. And I agree. I mean, all of us here are multidisciplinary, right? Like people at Carnegie are usually multidisciplinary, but they they pick the immediate adjacent field to their thing, which is great to start off. Like try thinking about how your work applies to some a field that you don't think is adjacent to you. That's the kind of multidisciplinarity that I want to see, that I'd like to think about. That you want to be. Uh, that I want to be, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, of course, doing data science, doing, you know, informatics, AI-related stuff really gives me that opportunity without even have to taking too many jumps because almost everything is adjacent because data is like central to everything, right? Yeah, every field has data. Yeah. Every field has information in it, right? So your training as a data scientist, as an informatician, Mm -hmm. really you can impact so many different fields. Mm -hmm. So it was awesome. It was a great experience. And, you know, I think it set me up for the way I think about science, about collaborations, and really made me open to learning so much about so many different fields and domains from amazing scientists that I come across, you included, of course. And like I said, every time I work on a project with some scientists, I try to learn as much as I can. And it's just, it's been amazing. I love that open-mindedness. And you've used your training in computer engineering, AI, data science, informatics, to really influence and reshape a particular field that we'll talk about right now, which Mm -hmm. is, in general, geosciences, but Mm -hmm. very specifically for our conversation today, mineralogy. Mm -hmm. So we're going to highlight two papers of yours that are Mm -hmm. currently in press. They've been accepted Mm -hmm. and they're about to be published. Mm -hmm. The first one is simply titled what is mineral informatics? And before we answer that question, though, mm-hmm. <laughs> what is mineral informatics? I think we should probably ask, what is informatics? Mm-hmm. But before we do that, <laughs> I think, let's just take one small step back again and ask, what is information? Yeah, that's a great question again. So my view of information starts with my fundamental view of data. And I said data is everywhere. I mean that more than in the sense of like scientists collecting data or generating data. Data is just encodings of like facts, right? Of like things that are out there. So for me, information is a representation of data that lends itself to use for humans or any particular organism. The things we observe are data, but like 
we make sense of it in some way in our heads, right? We draw some conclusions from it. We notice some patterns. We create certain representations of basic data that we see. That's what information is for me. It's just, you know, representations of data that lend itself to use. That makes sense. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. So it's data in use. Exactly. And then what is informatics then? Yeah. Informatics is the study of information. Like there's a science of information. People study information all through the information life cycle, right? Mm -hmm. And so information has a life. It starts from, you know, creating data, processing that information, storing it, keeping it there, making sense of it, analyzing it and so on. So there's this whole like life cycle. Informatics is the study of that. Essentially, what informatics is, is it studies the interaction between the information in natural or artificial systems. Artificial systems, depending on the system, might be a bit easier because there are closed boundaries to that system. But in natural systems, anything and everything influences anything and everything else. And so you have to usually take a certain viewpoint, a certain faceted view of the system that you're studying and study it from that point of view and analyze the information there. And that's the crux of informatics. And now hopefully everyone listening can sort of see how informatics can essentially help transform or revolutionize any other field of science because it doesn't matter what your data is, if it was taken by a telescope, if it was taken mm -hmm. by a microscope, if it was out in the field or generated on a computer through simulations, all of these aspects of informatics applies, no matter if you're a geologist, yes. biologist, yes. chemist, engineer. Yeah, they're all generating data. They're all generating information. They all want mm -hmm. to use that information better so your training can be impactful. Absolutely. And, you know, for those who can't see what's going on here, I'm like vigorously nodding along to, you know, <laughs> Mike saying the things he's saying. But yeah, exactly. I've had the immense pleasure and privilege of working with some amazing scientists and introduce informatics methods, informatics viewpoints, informatics techniques to various different fields. And that's sort of one of the things we're going to talk about is mineral informatics. It's something sort of been working on for the last six years. And the paper is a culmination in some sense of six years of work in bringing the world of mineralogy, but also just generally the world of mineral data to a place where it's now ready for the next big step. So let's talk about that right mm -hmm. now. So your paper's title is What is Mineral Informatics? Yes. So in a very succinct sense, what is mineral informatics? So as I just mentioned about informatics, right? Like with some very complex systems, natural systems, you have to take a certain viewpoint at certain stand and then view the world or view the system from that stand. That's minerals for us in mineral informatics, right? And so it really is saying like, what can we do with the mineral data in the world right now? However, it was generated. And the crux of the paper is sort of painting a picture of the landscape of the field of mineral data resources, mineralogy in general, and saying like, here's what we can actually do with all of the mineral data. And here's how it can affect not just the field of mineralogy, not just the field of petrology, but biology, astrobiology, geosciences, paleobiology, I could just go on, the list is there <laughs> in the paper, but uh, I sort of put this paper together because I thought we were finally ready with the results that we created, with the exemplary examples that we have on scientific advances that we've made using data science and informatics on mineral data, 
that we can have a more structured way forward as a field, as a scientific community of really embracing data-driven research in mineralogy, but with mineral data specifically. So let me ask then, mm-hmm. what does mineral data look like for mm-hmm. the vast majority of the audience who have mm-hmm. never played around with it? Mm-hmm. And then what does it mean to take a data-driven approach to mineralogy? So Mindat is a great example to start from because it's the biggest mineral data resource in the world, mm-hmm. run by Jolly and Ralph. Mindat.org. Yes, Mindat.org. Yes. yes. Yeah. Shout out to Jalian also, because <laughs> Jalian really started this, I think in 99 or 97, I can't remember, as sort of a home project where he was enthusiastic about collecting data. So he put it up into a database of sorts for himself and sort of grew gradually from there. And it's become this massive crowdsourced, but expert curated mineral data resource which has, I think, like over a million mineral and locality pairs. Like a locality is where a mineral occurs, right? And so the most common way mineral data looks like, let's just take Mindat as the example for that, is you have two main entry points into your mineral data. The first one being localities. So it's just any place in the world, sometimes not even in the world, some minerals from Mars and minerals from, you know, the moon and stuff are still there and meteorites and stuff. But you have a particular locality, let me say, you know, Bisbee, Arizona or something like that, like is a big mineral locality, right? And you find tons of minerals occurring there. Like, let's say, I'm just going to throw out a number. Let's say there are 30 minerals occurring there. So when you start from the locality viewpoint, you click a particular location in the world and it lists out all the minerals that are occurring there, the chemistry of those minerals, any other additional properties, physical properties of those minerals, the age of the minerals occurring in that locality and so on. So that's one entry point and you can do this for basically any sort of locality in the world. The second entry point is the mineral itself where you start off with say calcopyrite, right? And I just want to know anything and everything about calcopyrite. So I'll start off by looking at the hardness, the color, the luster, the geochemistry, the maximum age is what we call it, but like the oldest occurrence of calcopyrite, the newest documented occurrence of calcopyrite and so on. But on top of this, you will also have a list of localities at which calcopyrite occurs. Calcopyrite is fairly common. So you'll find that it's occurring all over the world. So this is the basic way a mineral data looks like is you have the geochemical, the physical properties, the structural properties of minerals, but then also you have like the geographical properties, where it occurs, what altitude it's at, what's the lat long, what kind of like temperatures around there, you can sort of infer these kind of things as well. Very good. So the kinds of minerals that are out there, what their properties are and where they are found. I think this very smoothly transitions into the next paper that we want to Mm -hmm. talk about, which is one of those like mind blowing papers for me. When you told me about the concept of this paper, I was like, this is going to change the fields forever. And it's really an exemplar of how mineral informatics is going to be the future of the field. And so let's talk about this paper. This, Mm -hmm. This next paper is called Machine Learning Approaches for Predictive Mineralogy in Earth and Planetary Science, a Study in Mineral Association Analysis. Okay, so as the title suggests, 
at the heart of this work is something called association analysis. And so let's introduce that now. Association analysis sounds super esoteric, but it's actually kind of a big part of our everyday lives, right? So yeah. people may not be aware of it, but it actually, we, we feel the influence of association yeah. analysis all the time. Tell me about how we all interact with the products of association analysis. Yeah, the most common application of association analysis that we see these days is like recommender systems, right? And so we're all on the internet. We have Netflix subscriptions and like Amazon accounts and stuff. And it's just what gets pushed to you in terms of content. Like every time you see a Netflix tab that says, oh, here's a list of movies that you might want to watch because you liked this other movie, right? Here's a list of shows that you want to watch because you like Star Trek. Yeah. And that's association analysis at work in some level. Same for sort of Amazon's recommendations for like, well, you might want to buy these three things together. Or, you know, if you bought this, you might want this as well. Like you have a camera. Uh, do you want that macro lens? It costs <laughs> you like an additional, I don't know how much macro lenses cost, but like a few hundred dollars. <laughs> things like that, right? So things are recommended to us all the time from like friends on Facebook, followers on Twitter to like shows on Netflix. And at the crux of it all is association analysis in a general way because it's trying to form associations between shows of the same genre, between shows that different people have liked historically and sort of recommend it to you because you just haven't watched that new thing. So that's kind of what we're doing with minerals here. We've of course taken a more preliminary approach to the mineral associations than, you know, the Netflixes and Amazons of the world because they spend a lot of money, a lot of people's resources and, you know, manners on improving their algorithms so that they can compete with the rest of the world. I mean, a good example, this is a bit outdated though, but when we started the Mineral Association Analysis Project almost four years ago, Netflix had a competition going on where they had basically, I think, set out close to a million dollars in prizes for people who can improve their recommender system by like a few percent, maybe by 1% or something like that. And that tells you the value of even that slight bit of improvement on recommending you things that you can see, right? Yeah. We're trying to apply the same concept to minerals and trying to get the same value on recommendations and predictions made in mineralogy. So these recommender systems are only able to do what they do because they have vast amounts of data, yeah. right? They know that like 90% of the time, if you watch Star Trek, the next generation, mm -hmm. maybe next you will watch Star Trek Deep Space Nine or Star yeah. Trek Voyager or the next Star Trek series, etc. Mm -hmm. And the same thing can be said with minerals. We have this vast mineral database, like you mm -hmm. said, mindat.org. Walk me through how the association analysis actually applies to minerals. You're exactly right, right? So in mindat.org, in, in a lot of other mineral data resources, you just have, here's all the minerals that occur at every locality. And so if I study those, there are, I mean, this number keeps getting updated. So I believe we're close to 6,000 minerals. You know, all the minerals that we know to exist are close to 6,000. And there's like little more than half a million localities on earth. So you can see how that combination adds up to a lot more, oh, more yeah. than a million pairs, right? Mineral locality pairs. And so that's what we do. We find patterns of minerals that co-occur all the time. And when certain minerals keep co-occurring all the time, and there are certain localities where, let's say I say four minerals co-occur together, and there's a certain locality that has only three of those minerals occurring, I can make 
an educated guess that that fourth mineral would co-occur there because everywhere else that those three minerals have occurred, the fourth one has been found. Mm -hmm. So I'm making an educated guess, a prediction that you should go there and you'll probably find this fourth mineral. That's like the simple explanation. There are some nuances to it though, because minerals behave in a way that's a bit more unique than, you know, our shopping patterns, for example, which is what this algorithm was first created to make was to analyze sales patterns was for like the Walmarts of the world Mm. uh, where they would find somewhat wacky combinations of like things people would purchase, but they would always purchase together. So let's, let's put these things together in our aisle. So the interesting example for that is like beer and diapers is the joke that's made. Like put the beer next to the diapers because they found that, I don't know, like people who have kids and buy diapers want to drink more alcohol. I don't know, (laughs) you know, but it's just like, Put them within the vicinity of each other and you might you might want to buy that. Or, you know, in milk and bananas go together. So some of these combinations are super expected, but some of these combinations are unexpected. And so we want to find all of those things for minerals. And that's exactly what we did. We have confident predictions for, you know, things that people know will occur, but they just haven't found. But you also have some very interesting predictions of like, no way, that shouldn't occur with that. But the prediction has been made and some of our predictions have been ground truthed. And uh, people are like, oh, I guess we should start looking for like this new mineral. You know, I can't remember the exact mineral. You know, I'm the lead data scientist on it. Shana Morrison is the lead mineralogist on it, right? But there was a particular prediction that Shana and I were discussing while we were developing this uh, manuscript where she was like, this should not occur together. And I was like, are you sure? the machine is super confident that this should happen. She's like, okay, let me dig into the literature a bit. And she went and read papers on, you know, serpentinization on minerals occurring in that particular area to find the lithology of that area and stuff. She's like, you know, I found some obscure papers that are not common knowledge that actually justify geologically and geochemically this mineral to occur there. I think this is an awesome prediction. People won't expect it, but like, yeah, it's possible for it to happen. Yeah, that's so cool yeah. that, that you train an algorithm based on this enormous data set. Mm-hmm. And then you're able to draw these unexpected connections between minerals. And based on everything that we know traditionally about geochemistry, you'd be like, what? Those two? But then, you know, you, you dig in the literature as Shauna did, or maybe you, you ask a geologist friend mm-hmm. to go out there and find it. And they do uh, either in the literature or out there in the field. And it's just like, spot on it's it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing so i already see the implications here for finding very like rare minerals mm-hmm. here on earth maybe precious minerals mm-hmm. or things that may enable technology you know all yeah. of our computers our laptops our phones our microphones rely on you know these kinds yeah. of metals any other implications that you see here most definitely all the things you mentioned right this is a big thing both for like industrial side of things but also like Government side of things is the critical minerals, right? So we find minerals with rare earth elements, right? It can be neodymium, like all the magnets and stuff. And, you know, I say magnets, those are important in more than just what we think they are because, you know, high-speed rails use magnets and like neodymium-based things. 
uh, windmills are there so like for solar power for other you know wind power and other things these are extremely precious lithium-ion batteries are used in almost everything these days so that's the commercial side of things on top of that there's sort of an exploration a scientific exploration angle that i believe this will be very uh, useful for as well because we know very limited things about the mineralogy of everything other than earth yeah but we still know a little bit about mars we know about the moon we know about vesta a little bit you know so it's really to use what we know here to study the occurrences of like minerals in other planetary objects as well when we get there and it really opens to the our doors to some predictions if we can get to that stage of like mapping out localities on mars and say well you should go here and try to find these kind of things and maybe one of the rovers there can pick up something and analyze it for us to see if we're right i mean this is the application of mineral association analysis that really speaks to me mm-hmm. and also to tie back Star Trek into this discussion, right? A central mm-hmm. theme of Star Trek is to explore strange new worlds, hence the mm-hmm. name of this show. Oftentimes, the crew, you know, is in their spaceship. They're orbiting mm-hmm. a planet. They're making some kind of scan of the planet or the asteroids to look for signs of mineralogy. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, they're looking mm-hmm. for dilithium crystals, which oh, is nice. yeah. which is a, uh, I should clarify, make sure everybody knows, is a fictional mineral. There's no such thing as dilithium, but it's important in the Star Trek universe because it powers warp drives, and there are many nice. instances where they're trying to look for dilithium. And I feel like probably what's happening on the ship while they're scanning is there's some association analysis mm-hmm. going on. Maybe dilithium is very hard to actually identify, but mm-hmm. if you can identify mineral A, mineral B, and mineral mm-hmm. C that always seem to co-occur with dilithium, mm-hmm. then you can be pretty sure that you're going to go and be able to find it. And Oh yeah. And associations are at the back of so many things, right? And, you know, I'd be curious to see what a lot of Star Trek watchers think about the computer that you know everyone seems to ask questions to and answers them what is at the back of it because of course with you know modern day AI advances everyone thinks oh that's like that must be some chat gpt like thing yeah but it could also be associations and and some sort of a reasoner behind it Mm -hmm. where it'd be like well you know this is the recommended course of action based on the bylaws that were written by starfleet and the computer is going to reason and give you recommendations based on associations between those bylaws, right. something like that. So it could be powered by anything, but yeah, association analysis in its crux as a concept is very simple. It just looks at associations between any entity that you want and reoccurring patterns there and makes recommendations or predictions based on those. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Again, so, uh, you know, really great example of the power of, Data science informatics. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if your data are objects on Amazon, TV shows on Netflix, mm-hmm. or minerals in the real world. You can apply association analysis and get really cool, novel, and unexpected results mm-hmm. by training a machine learning algorithm on that data. So that slides very nicely into my next set of questions. Next time, Anirudh and I will dive deep into the history of artificial intelligence and talk about how AI is reshaping science and society alike. I'll get to ask him about how close we actually are to creating an android-like intelligence akin to Lieutenant Commander Data. You know, when I was deciding where to sit at Carnegie, where I'd physically sit, 
there was a bit of controversy. The astronomers, of course, wanted my office to be in their building. After all, I study planets. But my postdoc advisor, Bob Hazen, suggested that I sit in a different location, in the data science bullpen. You'd get to rub shoulders with a world-class data scientist named Anirud Prabhu, Bob told me. I thought about it for like 10 seconds and decided to go with the bullpen. That's why I came to Carnegie to learn, to explore strange new fields of science, to seek out new ways to seek out new life. And I'm so glad that I made the decision that I did. Getting to spend this much time with Anirudh, every single day conversing with him, learning from him, asking him my stupid questions, and not to mention also getting to work very closely with Bob Hazen himself and our wonderful colleague Shauna Morrison has completely upended my view on how science can be done and on the role of information in all of our lives. More on that next time on Strange New Worlds. Until then, see you out there. Yeah, I can't get enough of it, you know, coming here every day, working with Bob, working with you, working yeah. with Sean, I've always working with everyone. It's just so much fun. It's just exciting. I've not felt tired of my science even once, you know, felt tired of other things, but you know, <laughs> not, not the science. I feel exactly the same way. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. What a great group. So many inspiring people around mm -hmm. us. Yeah. I can't think of a better place to be. Yeah.